Welcome everyone to the Defenders Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. What part of I Know the Drill did you not understand? The Defenders Podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 103, Worst Behavior, is sponsored by Anna Asher Associates, a pragmatic utopia, communal workspaces, juice bars, standing desks, those bouncy balls that people sit on and some people find annoying. We got all that. Pete, before we jump on into this episode of Defenders, just want to quickly go around the horn as uh, we look at the calendar uh, next week, preparing to turn into September. Uh, of course, towards the end of next week, we have the uh, Inhumans IMAX movie to look forward to, and we'll be podcasting that. And of course, uh, when September does hit, uh, we have Star Trek Discovery to look forward to as well, also being podcasted. So if uh, you want to follow either of those podcasts, then either uh, be subscribed to our pop culture podcast or uh, check uh, Fantastic Geek anywhere that you find podcasts or fantasticgeek.com for the individual feeds for those shows. So it's not just Defenders that has our podcast dance card full there. Inhumans, Star Trek Discovery, all the other shows in the Marvel Cinematic TV universe. So uh, plenty to listen to when you're not filling your ears with Defenders. Let's crack open the case files to see what our defenders had on the docket in this episode. Matt, our teaser, rather lengthy teaser, begins with a man and woman speaking Turkish and the uh, the Chiron there, the superimposed months ago. Yeah, I like how it's become this thing in Marvel TV. I don't know if it's a, a, a conscious stylistic choice, but they kind of don't get overly worried about the chronology when they do need to do flashbacks. It'll be some time ago, now. It'll be months ago, today. Um, we geek out over all this stuff and how it's all, hashtag, all, you know, it's all connected. It does them no good to get to give us the specific point when she had a meal in a Turkish restaurant. To just say a while ago ties somehow into uh, the end of Daredevil season two, which of course was about a year ago at this point, uh, if not more. You know, we don't need to get bogged down by chronology. Just like Alexandra doesn't need to be bogged down by a busy restaurant. Pete, she's eating alone. Uh, I doubt that's because it's uh, it's a slow Tuesday. I just have this notion that they were open for her at that time. Uh, she loves the meal. She says so in Turkish. And she likes it better than they serve it in Constantinople, Pete. Served it, Matt. <gasps> past tense, because she's not somebody to be bogged down by details. This is its ancient name, Numant Istanbul. Um, which, again, further hinting at would seem the extreme age of Alexandra, which is still to uh, be disclosed. But uh, because it's the Marvel Cinematic TV Universe, somebody somewhere is going to pull up in a black SUV, outsteps the white hat, uh, who is suddenly talking about the black sky, and they have it, Matt. And then we see a shrouded figure that we assume right off the bat is Elektra, 
um, being carried in men's hands up a freight elevator. And then because of the uh, closed captioning, um, which I always watch uh, TV when I can with, uh, Matt has increasingly done that. We get the name of the white hat, which is Sawande. Uh, indeed, I noticed that as well. And I had this brief little moment in my head saying, well, how how canon is it if the, the subtitles say it? I mean, I doubt, you know, some uh, some staffer at Netflix was like, oh, I don't know. I've got to call him something. Uh, Sawande. So good enough for me, certainly, that uh, that he has a, a, a bit of a more formal name there. Uh, we see this burial shroud of sorts taken off, and uh, sure enough, it is Electra. And I, I appreciate, from an acting point of view, this moment that Alexandra has stroking Electra's face in a way that is both reverential and almost maternal. Yeah, and to see that it is actually uh, Electra inside, and so Wanda's asking him how long she's been waiting for this, too long. That, that smoothing of the forehead and then the discussion that this will use the last of their resources. Are you sure you want to risk it? And Alexandra says she's never been more sure of anything. Um, we're bringing the baggage, obviously, knowing she's got this massive organ failure, whatever's going on with her. Does she know at this point that that's happening? Does she not? And that's the gut punch coming after using these resources. It's all stuff we'll have to talk about with our theories in a little bit. But it's, it's interesting grist for the mill nonetheless. And uh, suddenly there are candles lit. Uh, there is powder being mixed into black liquid. There's that giant urn that we've seen before in these tubes that are uh, connected and um, – you know, as she's she's put in and uh, the liquid is uh, poured on top of it and the lid goes down, Alexandra takes in all of this and we go to black before suddenly uh, there's a side view and the urn opens from within and uh, gasping and, and screaming out of it is a black ooze blood covered Electra. That that cut to black showing a passage of time, presumably from when the liquid was administered to her her return to life. Uh, you'd think it would be a great time for a title card, but you know they they keep this extended teaser act uh, rolling certainly. And kudos to I guess the makeup department that made this red liquid. It's really an interesting viscosity. She's yeah. able to rub it off of her face enough that her natural skin tone and features show through right away not that i think there would have been any confusion who it is but just somebody has to sit down and make this stuff and you know it's not going to be equal parts of uh red food dye and uh you know <laughs> pancake syrup or whatever it is it's, it's got to be something that works in the tv world and it's it's especially useful once electra is out of the sarcophagus we're able to really see both of her eyes you know actors and eyes and windows to the soul and all that and all made possible by this uh this makeup choice yeah and alexandra tells her that she knows she's afraid that will pass so will the pain um and as she extends a hand um Electra takes a swipe at it to the point where the guards behind her 
uh, you know, are, are ready to act, but she tells them to stand down, explains to Electra or whatever she is now uh, that this is your home. We are your family, that she's waited so long to meet her. And um, then they briefly fight. And I think it was really cool to see uh, Sigourney Weaver. Yes, we've seen her be physical before, but at her age, I mean, she's got to be in her late 50s, early 60s at this point. She and is the, She is 67. She's older than I thought. Um, and she looks fantastic. But to see her move in a choreographed, but a very simply choreographed little fight there, a lot more dodging and, and parrying than anything else, was really cool. Alexandra looks a bit stiff in the fight. That said, you know, as just noted, the actress is 67. I felt like, I mean, I'm sure they both, both actresses, Sigourney Weaver and L.D. Young, I'm sure they had training. L.D. Young certainly has had more training and is certainly more fit just by virtue of her youth. So more of the emphasis or more of the weight of this fight scene was on L.D. Young to make it, to, to sell it for both actresses since Sigourney Weaver, again, no disrespect, just, you know, doesn't quite have the... Uh, the fighting prowess that L.D. Young has. And both parts work together, and it's a fantastic moment where, despite some of the stiffness that Alexandra shows, she clearly is a a superior quality fighter. Um, and, uh, well, with that, time passes. Alexandra, is uh, she feeds Electra um, and explains that there was birth and life and death and the horrifying darkness afterwards. Don't tell Matt Murdock, the Catholic. Um <laughs> Important in this scene, in fact, Pete, something that I feel like I missed on first viewing, Alexandra says after this whole birth, life, death, the darkness afterwards, coming back from it, Alexandra has felt that too and has worked to avoid going back there to that darkness. But she's seen it more than once. So she's been dead. She's been brought back. Nay, Colleen talks about later in the episode how the hand seems to derive its strength from its ability to resurrect people. So we're getting closer. It's been such a tantalizing aspect of the hand. It feels like for so long that we've been podcasting this <laughs> with the idea of, you know, the blood and then Daredevil season two with the urns and everything there and, and, and what's going on. And, you know, just just want to know at this point <laughs> what's going on. But clearly, Alexandra has has seen this other side that she refers to it. And and she's done everything she can to never see it again, despite seeing it more than once. Um, but now that they've been brought together, she tells um, Electra that that's not something they need to worry about. Um, Electra can't even really express herself she asks who she is cryptically um and alexandra equally cryptically tells her you are everything and then it's time to uh check out some weapons on racks indeed pete more time has passed and uh on these these two racks a variety of weapons are laid out it occurred to me in that particular moment, um, there's not a whole lot going on in terms of set. They're in some giant warehouse space. 
Uh, the center of the space is lit. There are these two racks. But you in no way feel that it's sparse. It's just kind of, you know, yeah. if on second viewing you're looking at the corners and the background and whatnot, you go, oh, this is kind of like a cheap setup. And I don't even mean cheap in a derogatory way, just they didn't spend a lot of money on this particular mini scene here where she picks out a weapon for 15 seconds. Okay. Um, and indeed, Pete, Electra chooses the Wakizashi, uh, a short sword that separates into two. Uh, we then see that she is training with wooden weapons and in her first fight against the bearded man, there's actually a nice progression to that fight. Yeah. She's hit quickly, then she's hit after a bit, then she defeats him. Uh, and from there, the montage continues with uh, with uh, wood weapons easily taking out first three opponents, then six opponents, many of which have excellent, excellent falls. There's some fantastic stunt work here. And Pete, no joke, the last guy who falls when it's her versus six it just something went off my brain. I think he was one of the stunt guys, albeit from from uh, Iron Fist. But I think he was one of the stunt guys that sat near us at New York Comic Con last year. It just looked familiar. Wow. Maybe it's a false um, memory. I don't know, but it was like it's that guy. <laughs> I remember him in like the Iron Fist stunt crew hoodies or whatever they had. Well, hopefully he wasn't the guy that got the the bone cracked before Alexandra says she's ready, and ten ninjas draw their swords and then the lights go out. There's some fighting and, you know, you pointed out the, the sparse location, I think really cool to save the violence for our imagination. And then the lights come back on and there are 10 blood smeared bodies on the ground. Particularly since, you know, they're trying to operate somewhere in, in, in this gray area between you know, TV 14, TV 13, and not quite TVMA. So what is that, you know, in Jessica Jones, some of the bedroom scenes, TV 17, TV 18 maybe. Uh, with this, do you really need to see 10 people sliced and diced? No, you can just lights off, boom, lights on, and uh, and they're all dead. It's, it's, it's clear enough. But Pete, the scene is not over yet. No, um, Alexandra says to bring it to her. And then as this, you know, black case is shown, uh, says that you asked me a question. This is the answer. This is who you are. They open it up and it's that iconic red Electra outfit. With that, we head to the title card. Uh, the only big takeaway for, uh, for this particular episode is that it is directed by uh, Peter Hoar, or Hoar, not quite sure how you pronounce it. It's spelled H-O-A-R, so I don't know if it rhymes with Roar or goes with, uh, well, Hoar, as I said. Regardless, Pete, he, a veteran of uh, three Daredevil episodes and one Iron Fist episode, so clearly part of the, uh, part of the Marvel family at this point. Yeah, and for as important an episode as this to get the backstory of where Electra has been. And, you know, by the end of this episode, our full blown team up, finally, I, I think the right choice. We start the body of the episode here with Electra looking at her reflection before. Sawande comes in and says that she's ready for you. And, um, Alexandra then, uh, is face to face with stick again. He's got his hands uh, cuffed around a pipe um, and the war that uh, he's been fighting his entire life. He's told it's over. 
but he remains confident that as long as Iron Fist lives, nothing's over. Uh, and, and indeed, Pete, he isn't uh, quaking in his boots, um, uh, uh, particularly as he speaks with uh, Alexandra. He's heard, in fact, that she doesn't have much time left. Uh, I love the easy rapport between the two of them, uh, passing references made to, you know, they're not going to try to torture him uh, anymore. And he says, good, he's kind of gotten a little tired of that. Um, he always enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, uh, it's around this point where Electra is brought in. And I like how, obviously, Stick, not being a, a sighted person, uh, can't make the visual, but when she is in proximity to him, indeed, her arm and her sword at his neck, um, he quickly realizes it's her. Um, and there's also reference to, to how Stick has served Kunlun all his life, which was not a connection that was at the forefront of my mind. I know we got more of that in Daredevil Season 2, but having spent so much time discussing Kunlun in Iron Fist, it kind of was just like, oh yeah, right. Well... See, I read that line a little bit differently. She said, after a lifetime of serving Kun Lun, you don't even know what he, what the Iron Fist is. To me, that doesn't say his entire life. And it's coming out of the mouth of an individual who has lived and died and come back again. So I think that's, at this point, still a pretty questionable statement. Um, but to sniff her, I, I found that acting, um, you know, really effective that, that that's how he realized it, it was Electra. And Alexandra explains that the vessel that he knew before is gone. Only the black sky lives. And this is something from the moment we first saw stick on screen in about the fifth or sixth episode of that first season of daredevil, Black Sky has been something that has been very closely connected with him. He was in Japan. Uh, he had run a guy down and he was looking for a Black Sky. And now, three years later, several series later, <laughs> the culmination of, of all those feeder shows to um, you know have Elektra be a Black Sky and to have this discussion about it and, you know, to use a Star Warsism, he still senses the good in her when she seems to have gone to the back, to the uh, dark side. Well, all of this close proximity talking does not go on for for too long. Stick uh, does some head smacking. He ends up with a katana, and on first viewing, he appears to slice off his handcuffs. And I said, "Hey, you just can't easily slip off your handcuffs." Nope. <laughs> no, no, no. He chopped off his own hand, and I love it's that right they hand. they they obscure it slightly, either intentionally or on purpose. It, the actual cutting is somewhat obscured, but then yes. they give that moment of hand on the ground, bloody. Camera, you know, moves up to it just to really make it clear um, that that he's done that to uh, be able to escape. He's gone out through the the proverbial uh, air conditioning duct that every building has a man-sized <laughs> HVAC that that goes nowhere but out. You can't say, is, quick, to the boiler room. It's just he's gone. That is hanging by one screw as the overhead interrogation light swings. And overall, it's an effectively staged scene in terms of oh, yeah. 
okay, now we can see the hand as it goes back and forth, but we're not going to linger on the disembodied hand. Um, you know, re- really, really, it it's it's fun and not too graphic. And Matt, I I looked at the timer. We were 17 minutes in before we got to any characters <laughs> other than Alexandra, Electra, and Stick. But you know what? It didn't feel that long. Well. Good news, Pete. Elsewhere, concurrent to all of this, Jessica Jones is uh, still in the police station. Uh, she's still being questioned, but now it's by Matt Murdock, who has indeed been brought on by Hogarth. Um, and the rapport between the two actors is absolutely wonderful. Uh, she's putting up a wall, and he's trying to respectfully push through it. Uh, he even reaches out about having read her file, suggesting that he knows about her powers. You wonder if maybe he's going to have a little confession of his own, but... All too quickly, she pushes him away. She's well, how about the Kilgrave stuff, too? Wondering if perhaps she was under some kind of influence in terms of her involvement. I mean, clearly he's a guy that, even though it would be in Braille, he stays on top of the newspaper and the media. And she was a very high-profile case when that all went down. I'm sure, too, Pete. He probably listens to all sorts of podcasts. We know Jessica Jones is a <laughs> podcast listener. Yes, uh, but he's probably, you know, he's probably, you know, either that or the radio. I kind of imagine he's an NPR guy personally, but regardless, Pete, Jessica Jones is free to go and does so all while Matt Murdock listens on. Yeah, she contacts Malcolm right away, uh, explains she's given her statement. What exactly did you say? And it's a way to remind the viewer that Matt has these super listening skills. So it doesn't seem so absurd at the end of the episode when he hears a silencer in the penthouse from the lobby. It's also a handy way to have the character of Malcolm without the actor. Yes. Um, so you kind of that you, as well. You, you get. You get set dressing that is unseen. You get the the totality of these four shows coming together without actually doing a scene, you know, involving the, the other character. Uh, Pete, however, we cut to Uptown with Luke Cage prepping a bag of ice. We can, you know, in front it. of the swear jar coffee can, but not the swear jar. Ah, well, it must be a popular brand of MCU or perhaps real world coffee. Um, Luke is found by Claire and, uh, he gives some expositional recap about Cole and white hat. He even recaps having been clocked by a guy who has a hand. It kind of glowed the hand of that skinny white kid. Pete, that's when Claire makes a call and cut to the dojo. Unless you want to talk about Claire's apartment. Not really. (laughs) Not that it's not exciting. We're fast moving, Pete. We're fast moving. (laughs) But it's, um, an effective way to get them all together. Yeah. The kid with this hand, wait, she knows a kid with a hand. Boom. There we go. He punched me. No, you punched me first. And it's of course the women with the level heads to get them together, know that they're fighting for the same thing, that they're on the same side. Why can't you be hurt? What's the deal with your fist? I earned it. Blah, 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 blah. The end result is that they are together and we can get closer and closer towards our team up. I just want to note, note in this scene, Pete, and I don't want to, I don't want to upset our pal Donna, who makes sure that we're, we're in our best behavior. Um, it seems early on in this dojo scene, I think you could argue that there's a total kind of Luke Cage scene here with half at Claire's apartment, half at the dojo. But 
uh, at the dojo. It's almost like Colleen is prepared to do to- the talking for Danny. Now, maybe that's just a way of giving the character more lines than she would have uh, already. And, of course, you want to have both women in the scene and whatnot. But there's almost like some Colleen splaining going on where it's like, no, no, Danny, I'll talk. And and then he kind of has to say, no, I'm going to explain what you just explained, too. Um, but they get their time to talk, Pete. I think he's meant to be cast as obviously the more outlandish of the two. He's got the glowing fist, calls himself the immortal iron fist, everything there. There's there's a fair amount of recap here. Okay, so this is why Claire went to China. Um, these were the people that attacked the hospital. It's a criminal organization because Luke knows nothing about the hand to this point when you have three other characters who are intimately aware of the threat. Um, but as incredulous as Luke is, as you know, really a stand-in for us as the viewer – to get to his powers, that he's bulletproof. Um, but hey, guys, you're on the same side, and you're going to sit here, and you're going to talk. Pete, the story returns to Jessica Jones talking to Michelle, the wife of the late John Raymond, uh, killed last episode. Uh, Jessica Jones is on the case and isn't worried about money at this point. She simply wants to get to the bottom of it all. Uh, it is hammered home that John led a clean life. His wife denies that he was into drugs, gambling, or even weird fetish stuff. Meow. <laughs> yeah, it almost seems like there's entirely too much insistence. No, he didn't do any of this stuff. I knew everything. We knew that he only loved two things, us and his job. Um, but Jessica is adamant that someone was targeting him. She's not sure who it is. Uh, but again, none of it sounds like her husband, um, to Michelle. Um, so we're still kind of at this impasse as far as moving forward. Her parents knock, Michelle's parents knock at the door and they're, they're tending to their, their grief stricken daughter. And that gives Jessica the opportunity to kind of look around the room. And she sees this award from Duncan and daughter design, the, uh, architectural firm where he worked for a net zero energy building. And that gives her a lead before she, you know, apologizes as she's leaving to the, uh, to the daughter that's kind of a kindred spirit to our Jessica. And the inclusion of the daughter caught my eye. And I don't know anything about, I I know nothing about the rest of Defenders after this episode, although I I did read, well, I I read one tiny thing, but I don't know who. Um, But I won't spoil anything beyond that. The idea that the daughter is in this scene without dialogue, I just wondered why and i think back to the first scene where michelle goes to hire jessica jones back in the the first episode yeah the daughter was there to give extra snark but i don't know what purpose the daughter served in that scene either so it's not quite a theory i'm just kind of making note that the daughter keeps showing up as though they want us to remember her i guess time will tell if that pans out or maybe she was the daughter of the I don't know, executive producer's niece or something. I don't know. (laughs) I I don't go that deep as far as that's concerned. But uh, moving out of the the space there, she winds up out on the street. 
She's looking over her shoulder. The camera moves around her. I have here in my notes, Matt, House of Cards music. Because <laughs> it was really evocative of that. All right, this this is moving around music. It's not in Washington, D.C. It's in the city of New York. But no sooner do they move down the block and the camera kind of shifts to, you know, uh, ankle height that we see Matt Murdock coming down the street uh, with a cane. The sound kind of dims out. We've got uh, echoes of um, Jessica's footsteps as he was tailing her. And then suddenly he loses it. And then she comes up behind him having had a cut in there or whatever. I think Matt, as we discussed off air, I think she did her own little Superman thing and then came around. I like your explanation better than mine. Mine is simply, well, clearly she had this vibe that she was being followed. Wasn't quite sure who, um, I just kind of read it as, you know, oh, she turned a quick corner. She did some kind of, you know, private eye, street smart type thing. Uh, I much prefer the idea that Matt Murdock, who is so uh, attuned to how people sound and different people sound, how her boots would sound versus uh, sneakers and dress shoes and all the like. I like the idea that Matt Murdock doesn't know what it sounds like when somebody, you know, is uh, leaping over a building in a single bound. And I love the idea that she just kind of catty quartered a uh, you know four or five story building and then was behind him. Um, maybe Pete, he was distracted by in the background. There was the poster of the Stanley NYPD character recruiting people to to work for for the police. Could have um, been that as well. But either way, he winds up down an alley. He folds his cane. He takes off his glasses and up the fire escape he goes. And there's Jessica Jones with her handy. Uh, camera to snap pictures of it you might think pete that she would follow him but that's at a point where uh, she receives a call from an architecture firm returning her call if her is the fake anna asher and uh i think even without seeing more of the episode which of course we all have uh you know when she puts on her kind of goody two-shoes voice you know that there's some private eyeing going on and um well, we would continue with that. But, Pete, take us back to Colleen's dojo. Luke says that um, Danny can fight. Danny admits that Luke can take a punch. Um, Claire said that they had done experiments. Again, it's kind of a recap for people who either forgot or didn't see the other shows in terms of what the abilities and the backstories of each of these characters are. And it works organically in that they're meeting and really kind of, you know, explaining themselves to one another. There's even, as they're going through this, Danny kind of mentions somewhat modestly, the fact that there was a whole showdown with a dragon and the look on his face as he modestly mentions this improbable fact. To me, that was indicative of the new presentation of the character here. Yes. Yes. And it just worked because we've seen the show. We saw a little bit of the, the dragon. It's not that crazy. We've seen crazier stuff in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But you have to admit, it sounds pretty crazy to somebody like Luke Cage, who is aware of maybe there's some weird science. You know, he's experienced weird science experiments. And sometimes the sky opens up and there's aliens and whatnot. But this is bonkers. So it's, it's presented really, really wonderfully. Good job everybody involved with iron fist in this scene 
We did it, Pete. We were positive. (laughs) The uh, peeing contest concluded, Matt. It's, uh, well, Claire says you're a good guy. Uh, Danny admits he's trying. Claire says you've done a lot for the people of Harlem. Hey, I just want to help. So we're back to motivation behind these two characters before it comes back to conflict. Yeah, it's kind of broken up by a brief scene with uh, Colleen and Claire in the bedroom, uh, sitting on the bed, giggling, you know, giggling how the boys are getting along and all that. Um, But soon enough, we get to the portion where Luke and Danny are now not getting along. Luke notes that Danny is a billionaire white boy punching black boys. Uh, Danny pushes back against the notion that he is uh, he is only a privileged beginning. Um, and the scene is capped off with Danny being told by Luke that Danny could have helped people with that privilege without the glowing fist. It's not a bad point, aside from the fact that we know Danny never really had access to his own money uh, until a few months ago. Uh, yes, he had a privileged childhood, but you know he kind of wasn't master of his own destiny. But Pete, if nothing else, that's twice that we have, at least I have, defended uh, uh, Danny Rand in this scene. Yeah, I mean, amidst the explanation of of everything that's gone on with him, how his parents were murdered, that um, the city he was sworn to protect uh, was invaded, not New York City, but Kunlun, um, and, and everything that comes with him there. I really liked the timely discussion and, and Luke forcing it home here that, you know, you are privileged. You don't understand that um, going after a, a black youth because of a personal vendetta, and it seemed a lot to Luke like he was going to beat him with an inch of his life, that this is not the way to go about it. And it does indicate a shift both in this episode and in the character as far as how he is pursuing this mission of his it really is a nice uh way to reframe both their perspectives does it also serve the story where now they're not going to be best buds until later on in these eight episodes but you still need them kind of trusting each other and aware of what their powers are and whatnot sure it serves that story purpose but it's win-win when you can also make a comment about the real world or have some have some commentary on how they view their world uh that sort of thing How about when he tells him that he had the power the day he was born, despite the strength he's earned? You know, this is meta commentary in the light of 2017 and an African-American man talking to a wealthy white billionaire. It probably serves the Defenders as a miniseries. It probably serves that miniseries well to not get into social commentary as deep as some of the feeder series did that said i'm glad that they're not just resting on their laurels and saying they go from not friends to best friends then they fight together and they beat sigourney weaver put a little meat on those bones and everything everything is much stronger as a result uh it's around this time by the way that luke goes to see uh cole in prison but cole clearly is not willing to talk much in part because they have eyes and ears everywhere, and it's going to get both of them in trouble. Uh, Indeed, Cole won't talk about White Hat, other than to say that he is next-level dangerous. 
Uh, he's not even going to touch the hand who he kind of seems to have a, a recognition of. Uh, however, Pete Cole does ask repeatedly, wink, wink, that Cole buy, uh, that Luke buy Cole's mother some lotto tickets, some scratch offs, scratch offs, man, nudge, yeah. nudge. The the cardboard uh, crack there for a lot of people in the uh, the lotto community, and you're kind of like, all right, is there going to be something on the on the randomly bought scratch offs that that's going to, you know, pop through a secret message or or something oh. like that. Nothing that, you know, ornate, uh, but it, it does send him in a particular path. Back to the dojo we go. Danny is meditating, thinking about how the fight against the hand has been so futile lately. Uh, Danny, in speaking with Colleen, he asks why he's been fighting street level operatives when he can go to the top. Pete, is this all talk about privilege and connections? Um, though Danny is not a businessman, those are weapons in his arsenal. And I like the kind of light bulb moment of Colleen saying, you know, you don't know the world of business and Danny saying, but I have access to this. I should use it. Um, and Danny, by the way, played by English actor, Finn Jones. He takes out his phone. He clicks on favorites. The word (laughs) favorites is spelled the English way and he calls Rand Enterprises. Yeah, no number this time on the phone. They they learned well from uh, Luke Cage when, you know, I and everybody else was calling the number of uh, one of the members of the crew. Um, but suddenly he's in the, the lobby of Rand Enterprises. There's a woman who welcomes him back. Mr. Meacham, however, Matt, is abroad. He's not there. He's on a business trip uh, with, with her. The pride of central New Jersey, Tom Pelfrey. Tom Pelfrey, pride of Howell High School, the acting program there. Busy acting, not in this tier, although good for him, I suppose. Um, regardless, though, Pete, the, the unnamed uh, Rand Enterprise worker, who I believe has the job title of expositional worker, she quickly connects all the dots of all the companies that have Something business, shorts, asset transfer, something, something, Midland Circle Financial. Yeah. Um, and everything is coming into view. We've known of Midland Circle for a while where they're building that or, or digging that gigantic hole in the ground. Um, not clear whether that was for the building that we see later or whether it's underneath that building, who knows, but we've got, uh, the locations that they've been to Sao Paulo, Berlin, Moscow, not to mention Paris, Miami, Phnom Penh. And, uh, it all leads them to cross-referencing these holdings companies that went through those cities and, uh, three of them shut down in the last year they were also on a list that, um, what do you know, Ward told them to stop dealing with uh, this Midland Circle financial before he conveniently went on his trip that takes him out of this series. <laughs> I guess that is why, Pete, Danny says he has to handle this alone. Which made me say, no, don't separate yourself from Colleen. It's been so good with the two of you on screen for these three episodes. But hey, uh, he has to move on. The story has to move on. We go to Jessica Jones, who is uh, talking to an architecture guy 
uh, and he just loves talking about the pragmatic utopia of uh, communal <laughs> workspaces and whatnot. But her whole purpose is to get out of him the John Raymond designed a building at Midland Circle. Wait a minute, Pete. That's like the Midland Circle you were just talking about. I can watch Kristen Ritter affect these phony personas all day. She she gets a little nasally when she does it, which I think only adds to uh, the the seeming believability and the the vacuousness that comes with it. You know, talking about of of course we need a a juice bar. Like what what place would would not have a juice bar? And th- this really vacant not not acting vacant architect that's so used to designing uh really superfluous features into these buildings for these you know millennial new money people all i know is pete i'd like him to design the uh fantastic geek headquarters but i digress no no Back we go to Luke, uh, who is talking to Cole's mother. Uh, it is a poignant scene about her sons being pulled into a life of crime. Pete, I remember, too, that she's the mother of Candace, as we saw in Luke Cage. But the the the, the focus is not there in this scene. Um, she talks about the powerlessness she feels. Uh, Luke Cage says that he's going to stop the bad people who have pulled Cole in, showing that there's a sign of hope. Uh, he also delivers those scratch-offs to his mother, and we get the unnecessary but absolutely lovely detail that young Cole has been buying these since he was eight, giving gifts to his mother out of his lunch money. Again, Pete, that does nothing to advance the plot, that does nothing to advance Cole, who is going to die off-screen later in this scene, does nothing to get us to the hidden money in the box that we're going to talk about in a second, it does nothing to get Luke Cage to Midland Circle. But it's lovely. It it really, really is. Yeah. And amidst the discussion of the power of prayer and checking in on Luke, if you had not watched that series, that his father was a preacher and that he's a big believer in it um, before ultimately uh, as he's, you know, the taller one who can reach up and get the box off the shelf as the phone rings and she's in between getting some cookies we see the Midland Circle uh, stub around the, uh, the the ring of bells in the box. And then it's no surprise. Wait, some kind of accident. She drops the phone. And now all of her children have, have died as a result of crime in New York City. Back to the Chikara Dojo. Colleen is alone and hears something outside or at least you know, in the hall outside, and it is stick minus one hand asking for the fist. Pete, that's irony. It, it was a great scene. <laughs> um, and there's just that little flourish with the Asian sounding music. And then we cut to the really tension filled climax of this episode. We see Rand Enterprises SUV 27 pull up. Danny gets out. Um Funny how formal it gets in the lobby there. Oh, you're you're Danny Rand of Rand Enterprises, you say? Who are you here to see? The CEOs of of Midland Circle Financial. Are they expecting you? Um, wouldn't you know this stuff, guy at the lobby? I will give guy at the lobby benefit of the doubt in terms of he's probably used to 
you know, traffic flow. Yes, you have an appointment. No, you don't. You're not going to say, dude, you don't have an appointment. You're going to say, pardon me, are they expecting you? Um, nonetheless, I like Danny's answer, which is uh, something like, not like this. Like, Danny is proud of himself, yes. that he has learned a lesson, Pete, and he's showing up as the face of Rand Enterprises uh, and, and not, you know, with the fist of glowing. Um, a lady uh, takes him to the lavish boardroom uh, where he immediately starts to rip into them verbally. He has conviction. He has power in his voice. Mm-hmm. And in the background, Alexandra just slinks on in and her character takes control. And for all of Finn Jones's acting prowess, he is quickly outmatched by Sigourney Weaver, which is how it should be. Yeah. How could you not be? D- despite having laid it out for this boardroom of what winds up being red shirts with batons that they illegally transferred 243 million worth of assets through his family's company, that he's here to expose them. And with her walking in, putting her hand on his shoulder, uh, no, no, I appreciate your candor, your passion, uh, you know, Considering what I've heard about you, you're not as undisciplined as I expected. And she's in charge. She's in charge of the scene in name. She's in charge of the scene in demeanor. Oh, yeah. And and tell us what it is you were going to do. I'll just sit here provocatively on the edge of the boardroom table. Yeah, I love that somebody or some buddies made the decision to not get her a chair um, which, by the way, would have con- been conspicuous by yes. it being empty and whatnot. Yes. But the fact that she just comes on in and is just, I mean, think about what it says, Pete. You're sitting on the boardroom table. That alone is a power play. The fact that it is in this slightly turned manner, you know, showing the female form, there's that too. It's a complete power move by by everyone involved there, and it's, it's really a fantastic moment. Um, outside the building, though, Jessica Jones is walking in with Matt Murdock not far behind. He says that he's been there before and he wants them to leave immediately. Uh, but she she won't and she has questions about how he moves. Look, she took pictures. Smash goes the camera. <laughs> right. Um, all this amid the discussion that she says he's the most full of it lawyer that she's ever met and that they need to take a step back to evaluate the magnitude of that statement. <laughs> she's so quick with the lines. It, it, it just works so well, the, the chemistry, particularly in, in this tension filled scene, uh, with the two of them. Back up, we go to the boardroom where Danny's speech is wrapping up. Uh, and Alexandra has heard it all. She says, and, and there's kind of this deflating moment, but he continues to show the courage of his convictions. That's when the the secretary, presumed secretary, who had walked him into the boardroom, now takes out a gun. Uh, Pete, like every bad guy and bad gal ever, when the boss says words to the effect of, now kill him. Uh, of course, the gun-holding lady takes a moment to pause, which gives our hero just enough time to get the gun, but not before a shot is fired in the air. That's right, Pete. Shot's fired. Shot's fired. Yeah, which we know from earlier Matt Murdock can hear down in the lobby. Um, he takes uh, Jessica Jones' scarf. He ties it around his face, and he is on the way up. Um 
seemingly hiding his identity, but apparently no one would be able to place a, a suit wearing guy in the city of New York. Okay. <laughs> it kind of worked for me. He, he, when he does his ninja skills, he's used to having a covered face and now wants to do just that despite Ironically, none of his compatriots have similar concerns, but maybe that's because A, Luke Cage is out of the closet as a superhero person, uh, Danny Rand is already world famous, and Jessica Jones doesn't give a hoot. She doesn't at all, um, which makes their uh, team up when they wind up on the same floor for all of his acrobatics and her line there about how he looks like a fool on paraphrasing <laughs> all the more effective. It, it really, really is. It's a fantastic moment. And that's when you kind of, it really starts to come together. Oh, wow. We're, we're getting, you know, the team is starting to form. Um, but we go back into the boardroom, no help there yet. Uh, the board are also fighters. There are expandable batons that they have, uh, though they aren't to kill Danny. That's something that Alexandra makes quite clear. Um, and what breaks out is a very solid fight of about 12 on one. Yeah. Uh, and Danny takes out many of them, but then men with guns arrive. With uh, with darts there, tranquilizer darts, um, that he's suddenly dodging. He turns the gun back on a couple of them. Um, he uses a couple of the darts that hit the wall to uh, stab some of them. And before long, he's pinned on the table and Matt, there, there's a white, stark room here. We can't play on the color palette. Danny, as it seems he's trying to charge his fist, um, you know, just doesn't have the time. And wait, wait do, you, do you hear that? I hear the scratch of a needle on a record. I, I hear run, run. I hear some rap music. What does that mean? That means that Luke Cage is about to show up, which he does by breaking down the doors. Yeah. Is it him? It's him. And, uh, you know, he punches a guy through a wall. Punching's okay now, but it's complicated. And, of course, the bigger guns come in now, and he's using his body to shield Danny. They're suddenly surrounded. Danny lights the fist. And that's when Matt and Jessica are on the same level now. Uh, it's her scarf that's making him look like a fool. And uh, that's when Luke works a guy right through the wall. Um, and we finally, at this point, after some more goons are taken out, we finally have Matt Murdock, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Danny Rand in the same hallway. Uh, not seen altogether, Pete, since we saw them on stage at New York Comic Con. Uh, they're ready to fight. But wait, Pete, s someone, something is coming. Yeah, um, that Matt picks up on it first, obviously, with his senses. This after a little bit of catch up to establish that uh, Luke and Jessica know one another, uh, that the others don't really know one another, that apparently no one knows Matt Murdock or is going to speak his name. <laughs> and um, this something else coming is uh, Electra because Alexandra tells her, you know what to do. Um, and Jessica having run into her before knows that this is bad news and they've got to go more guys fill up the other end of the hallway, Matt, because we haven't had the full on Marvel Netflix hallway smashing experience just yet. It goes down now. 
It sure does. And the fight that unfolds, it really is a balletic display of violence. Uh, more goons being thrown through the walls. The very, very solid Electra and Matt fight. Uh, where the lethality of her sword is never in question, despite its and her inability to, you know, slice Matt to death. Um, and after he's thrown into a bookcase, the fight pauses. That's when he listens to his senses. He realizes it's Electra. And then she has this great look of recognition, which it took me the second view to realize she knows she's been called that before because Stick called her that at the top of the episode. Um, so, Pete, is this going to be it for Daredevil? It's not because there's Danny, his fist lit up right into the uh, Wazakashi sword that gets broken right to the hilt and Electra goes flying. Um, Danny helps him up. And, uh, you know, after the, the fight between the two of them that pretty much took out an office, uh, he knows it's Electra. Um, they are back in the hallway. They get into an elevator together and he asks, uh, you know, clearly for the viewer, uh, for the effect, who are you people? Everyone turn to your left. It's time for the lineup. Pete, let's start with the Grand Dame of the Defenders Baddies, Electra. And here we have Alexandra established as being even older than we thought. The the very winking reference to Constantinople, not to Istanbul, as far as uh, the the city where this dish would have been served. Um, and just the way that she seemingly dotes over whatever Electra has become as this black sky, that, that she's everything now, that she's she's invested everything emotionally, financially, physically into bringing this power to be. It, uh, it, it continues to be such a compelling presentation that Sigourney Weaver brings to the character. Uh, certainly Marvel is no stranger to having a, you know, really great actor playing your villain but i don't know she's just she's off the charts and of course pete speaking of baddies we see at the top of the episode white hat looking a little bit more uh deferential to alexandra uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on this guy will we get more of him um to to get more of him here to get him to speak for the first time i think is important um i hadn't really considered it before but now that we've had some you know, part of the world checking into that she seems to have been, uh, is, is this a man from that part of the world? Similarly, uh, with the, the powers of, you know, long life because of what the hands granted, who knows, um, the episode description kind of oversold his involvement in it. <laughs> I thought, um, but, you know, obviously it's more of him than we've gotten to this point. Last on the list is Electra, who we get the, the, the slightest glimpse, as you had said earlier, Pete, that there, there still is the good in her. Yeah. And that Matt recognizes her in kind of a similar way to stick. Um, obviously both blind individuals, but 
he with the far greater romantic connection to her and Danny bailing him out just in time. Um, you know, is there hope for her? Of course there's gotta be, uh, it, it can't be such a cut and dry situation, but to see her as this force that Alexandra relies upon to ultimately be her stopgap to, to wipe out or to incapacitate, um, iron fist and whoever else might come to his aid so that she can get presumably iron fist is the key to this door they've discovered. Um, you know, it, it, it just makes sense. Time to map out where this train might be heading with some theories. Pete, the first one I have uh, circling back to the beginning of the episode, White Hat, of course, says that saving Electra has taken almost all of their resources. Are our all-powerful baddies more on the brink than we thought? I think so. It's it said that this is going to use up the last of their resources. So to make it a finite thing that they can't continually reach in for this ability to bring people back and for us to have the further knowledge since this resurrection of Electra occurred months ago that now Alexandra is on the clock and losing some physical battle um, brings that needed urgency to it. I suppose also the the word resources could not uh, could perhaps not apply to the general health and wealth of the hand slash Midland Circle Financial. It could be the limited amount of life saving goo that they have, and whatever that process is, particularly up against or perhaps ironically up against uh, the the mortality that Alexandra has. Pete, here's one more theory, and I know I kind of touched on it before, but John Raidman's daughter has appeared in two episodes with seemingly yeah. little impact on the plot. Are we going to get more with her? I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything that could be coming, but her presence is certainly provocative. Well, Pete, never a provocative, always helpful are our pals on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. They help keep the lights on, whether we're operating on a, on a Midland circle kind of building or just, you know, kind of doing this out of our houses. <laughs> uh, they help make it possible. They are our boardroom with uh, extendable uh, clubs <laughs> ready to help out. B batons ready to help out. Wow, that is definitely a way to look at our patrons. So uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Fantastic Geek. Uh, you, you can donate at a level and, and get a Fantastic Geek uh, expandable baton. I guess we've got to make that happen now, Matt. <laughs> um, Asterisk, but, that might not happen. <laughs> but everybody who um, contributes is going to get uh, to to sit at the board table and and to get exclusive podcast content as Matt sits on the end of the table and uh, regales you. Here's what our detectives have picked up in the episode. Pete, take it away. Robert T. Frost writes into the Facebook 
fantastic geek page. Hello, Matt and Pete. Episode 102, a few thoughts. The cleanup crew melting the bodies reminded me of the 1976 movie Logan's Run when a sandman dissolves a body of a runner, except our crew's method is much slower. Matt, when Electra confronts John Raymond in Jessica Jones' office slash apartment, you said that John Raymond said, no, you're going to catch me. What he actually said was, you're not going to get what is in here. And then he shoots himself in the head. To me, that implies that the hand could draw out whatever vital information he has, even post-mortem. So shooting himself in the head denies them whatever is it is he had. Also, I agree with Matt that I would have expected Misty to say stop NYPD or some variation. However, I give this one a pass because of the familiarity they have with each other. Misty recognizes Jessica and Miss Jones recognizes Misty's voice. I enjoyed the deductive reasoning Alexandra and Madame Gao talk through about the wall being actually a door and that a door needs a key. I believe that we have some very heavy foreshadowing that Danny's iron fist is that key. And that led me to think that Kunlun had a deeper reason for keeping the iron fist as the protector by having the iron fist as protector. They in turn protect and shield the iron fist from the hand, thereby denying the hand a key. They need to open whatever is at the bottom of that pit. Thoughts? Till episode 103, your friend, Bob. Well, Bob always brings great thoughts, great analysis. And uh, I like most of all the thing he said about agreeing with me. Um, That's what I like best. Uh, (laughs) However, a bit more seriously, um, the, the, (laughs) the better interpretation of the correct line that John Raymond says before uh, shooting himself, that is very much appreciated. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to be watching these episodes twice uh, before before podcasting, which with some of the other stuff that we do is not always uh, possible. I think it's led to a better analysis on my part anyway, but I will take Bob's uh, Bob's catch there. I think it's, I mean, he mentioned it in the totality that if John Raymond has some knowledge that he does not want the hand to use, um, death just simply won't prevent them from getting it because he could be reanimated. So, right. You know, splattering his brains, that's the way to do it. And that shows a, a new level of conviction for the character that we just saw in the one scene. Definitely. Pete, as we start to wrap things up here, a reminder to everyone that we will be back on Tuesday with episode 104 and uh, continuing with the Tuesday, Friday release schedule until the conclusion of Defenders. And uh, as mentioned at the top, Inhumans, the IMAX movie, not too far away, and uh, Inhumans on ABC and uh, Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access coming this September. Busy time. But Pete, it's never too busy for people to be in touch with us. How can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,420 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally looking back lost on Twitter, you can be in touch with the podcast 24-7, 365. We are Fantastic Geek. That is fantastic with the P and the H. FantasticGeek.com, FantasticGeek.gmail.com, Fantastic Geek on Twitter and Instagram as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. 
want to talk some more about the Defenders or Inhumans or Star Trek Discovery or anything else, the place to be is facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH all one word like it today. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Let's talk about it never. Thank you.